Wonderful. Please take your seats. Uh, thank you very, very much, uh, Gwyn and Iwen, for leading us this morning uh, in, our, in our music. Thank you very much uh, to Will as well for leading us. May I add my welcome to Will's? It's really great to see you all here this morning. It's great to see new faces as well and old friends. You're very, very welcome here with us. If I haven't spoken to you yet, forgive me, I will do. It's really, really great to have you all here with us. Please do stay behind um, at the end of, of the, the service, and we'd love to be able to uh, uh, chat uh, with you and meet with you uh, over tea and coffee and uh, continue some of those earlier conversations <clears throat> as well. Well, welcome uh, again to our new uh, sermon series this half term, which we'll be looking at right up until Christmas, uh, both in our growth groups uh, in the middle of the week and uh, alongside it being taught from the front here on Sundays. And before we get into it properly this morning, as we start looking at chapter one together, I want to start our series by getting our bearings in this letter that Paul is writing to his young trainee, Timothy. And to do that, we need to ask all the questions that we always ask of a new book. Um, what is in this letter? That's a question we need to ask. Why is it here in the Bible? What does it have to say to us uh, today? And answering those questions will help us answer another question, which is just as important, and that is, why are we looking at this part of the Bible together? Why are we looking at this particular letter to the church leader, Timothy, as we read it, why are we reading that now as a local church here at Redeemer in Collington? Well, in answer to that second question, and the very first thing I want to say about 1 Timothy is that it is a book of the Bible, possibly the book in the Bible, which talks very seriously about the local church. That's what 1 Timothy is here for. It is the book in the Bible which talks about the local church more than any other. It talks about what the local church is, how it is to function, how it is to be led, how it is to be protected, and what it is to teach. And all the way through this letter, it is those things that we are going to come up against uh, time and time again, week after week after week. <clears throat> this letter is going to look at our godliness as Christians in the local church and how our prayer is to reflect uh, that and, and our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Chapter 2, we find that. This letter is going to look a lot at church structure, the way that church leadership is to be set up by way of elders and deacons who should be in those positions in the church, how they should behave, how they are meant to be treated, and what it is that they're meant to be doing with their time, chapter 3. This letter is going to detail what those not in leadership are to be like, how they are to behave, how they are to be treated, and what they should be doing with their time, chapter 4. This letter is going to describe the way that pastoral ministry functions on very basic, earthy, in-depth, detailed levels, chapter 5. And fundamentally, in chapters 1 and 6, the bookends of this letter, it's also going to describe how to spot and get rid of anything, anyone, any teaching that is against the gospel. Anything that is false and which wishes the church serious harm. Fundamentally, then, because of all of that, at the centre of all of this, 1 Timothy is going to show us that all those things, prayer, leadership, church structure, governance, function, church behaviour, is all necessary and supremely important for one main aim of the local church, and that is the proclamation, the defence, and the protection of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For 1 Timothy tells us in no uncertain terms exactly what the gospel is. The gospel which the church is to defend and protect and uphold and keep as the most central thing in church life, as the highest thing in church life, the most important thing in local church life. And we're going to see Paul argue in his letter to Timothy, his young church planter, if you like, exactly how he is going to do that. 
Paul is going to argue that in order to keep the true faithful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ the main thing in the local church, Timothy is going to need to dedicate his time on getting right leadership structures in place with the right people and the right governance established and, and the right pastoral care over people enacted properly with the right attitudes to godliness and with right caution and eradication of all teaching that is false. So all those things, says Paul, are going to need to be in place if the gospel is going to have any chance at all of standing firm in the church. For without those things, Paul is going to argue, without right leadership, without the right people in the right places, without false teachers, and without false teachers being expelled, the false gospels being shown up for what they are, without the right pastoral care, the right attitude to godliness among each other in place, well, the gospel will very quickly cease to be the main thing. The church will very quickly cease to be the church. It, it will very quickly just become a club. And that is supremely important to Paul because of when this letter is written and to whom he is writing it. This letter is being written to Timothy, Paul's young protege, his right-hand man. What does he say in verses 1 and 2? His, his son in the faith, who has been left by Paul a few years earlier to look after the church that Paul had started in a town called Ephesus, which is in ancient uh, Tur uh, Greece in modern-day Turkey. And Paul writes this letter to this Timothy, to this church in Ephesus, just as Paul is nearing the end of his life. And, and the apostolic age of the early church is drawing to a close, where every apostle, every church leader who was alive with Jesus is no longer going to be around. And where the early church, the, the ongoing church, has to learn then how to exist and thrive and move on without them. This letter, in short, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, they sort of make up the three of them, make up Paul's last will and testament as to what needs to be in place for the church to succeed into the future beyond the apostles. And because of that, this letter is therefore written for every church that is to be established and which seeks to stand the test of time in the earth of any age after the apostles, including this one. In short, what we have in 1 Timothy is the church planting manual of the Bible. And it is to my shame that we've actually only started looking at this now when we've been planted for almost four years. For if there is anything that is going to help us understand who we are, what on earth we're doing here on a Sunday morning, why we planted at all, what it is we're doing as Christians, meeting our friends in our houses, or chatting to the folk at three C's on a Monday, or the mums and dads at tin tops on a Thursday, or, or the people around us in our growth groups. If there's anything that's going to help us know what we as elders are meant to be doing, how we're meant to be behaving, how we're meant to, to lead, what it is that you guys are meant to be looking for. If, if <clears throat> there's anything that's going to help us how we're meant to be looking after the church. If there's anything that's going to help us in getting our minds right, in, in fundamentally driving vision and strategy in the local church family, to to cause us to properly look after people, to be for the community, not just in the community. If, if there is anything that is going to hold my feet to the fire publicly before you as your minister, who stands most supremely under the judgment of the word of God as a church leader of Jesus' church, it's going to be this letter. And don't just take my word for it. Let's see it in black and white. Let's see that introduction I've just summarized in what I think are the key verses of the entire letter, the verses which tell us exactly why Paul is writing this. Look in your Bibles. That's uh, a chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. They'll be on the screen in front of you and read them with me. Paul writes this. I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, I'm writing this letter to you, Timothy, says Paul, 
so that you may know, so that you, Timothy, may know as minister, that you elders who are here may know as elders and, and, and deacons as well, and all of you as church members, that you all may know how to behave in the local church. And why is that, is, why is that important? Well, it's important that we behave well in the local church, in, in the ways and the structures and the leadership that are detailed in this letter, because the local church is not just a club, it is what the household of God himself. That's an incredible thing to read. The church of the living God. The, the, the church who, who, who God indwells. The function of which is to be none other than the pillar and buttress which upholds and protects the only thing in the world worth protecting, and that is God's truth, the gospel. You see, that is what the local church is, according to God. And when we understand that truth, then by golly do we see how important it is that we behave in the way that God wants us to behave in his church. For, for the right protection of his truth, the gospel. It's really important. We, we can't mess around, in other words. And that is because the church is, first and foremost, his. It is his house. The church isn't my church. God forbid that it would ever become that. It isn't the elders' church. It isn't your church, in that sense. It's God's church. He leads it. We'll see in a bit. Ruled by Jesus. It's his house not the physical bricks and mortar of this place, this is an old bank, but, but you, the people in this church, you are his house. God indwells you by the Spirit. That's what Paul is saying here. And if that's true, then the church, the local church here, us, we are home to the living God. And, and it is all these things, it is God's house, it is where he lives because of the church's one supreme purpose, and that is to stand bright and loud and noisily in the earth as, as a pillar, like a beacon or a foghorn, blaring and, and beaming out in the earth to the whole community, the city, the nation, the entire world, the one truth of the gospel. And what is that? Well, the gospel we see in chapter 1, verse 15, summarized perfectly beautifully by Paul in, I think, the best way that we actually see in the New Testament. And that is simply this, chapter 1, verse 15, what is the gospel? The gospel is the trustworthy saying that is deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's it. And that is who we are, redeemed. That's what we're meant to be. That, that is what we do. Our sole purpose is to preach and hold out the faithful gospel, which is simply that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what we are tasked to do. And, and it's an incredible work. <clears throat> it's an incredible privilege that we are able to call, be called God's dwelling place, his household, the one institution in the world that will last the test of time, that's allowed to uphold and share and protect the only truth that matters, the truth of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that really excites us this morning. I really do. 1 Timothy is not a dry book. It's a magnificent book. And I really hope that as we go through this, it gets us excited about church again. And if we don't understand that, if we don't have all of that framework in our mind before we get any further in this letter, it, the, the, the magnificence of who we are, what we are to do in the world, if that's not front and center in our minds, if we, if we do not have the supremely high view of the local church that Jesus has of his church then 1 Timothy is just not going to make sense. And actually, we'll find it really, really hard. For if this is who we are, and if this is what we do, then it makes sense that who leads and, and how leadership works in the church, how they are to be held accountable, is very important. 
It makes sense that the intricate care needed by way of serious, in-person, in-depth pastoral ministry is very important. I'm looking at my pastoral team, who have helped me think through this a lot. The, the protecting the gospel from false teachers is supremely important. That, that godliness and good behavior in church life is supremely important. That the way you treat and speak of your elders, the way they sacrifice themselves for you and take the flack from the world on your behalf is supremely important. Because we're not a club where we get to say how the church works as, as humans, how we like it. We are the local church of God's house holding his gospel where he gets to tell us how his church works for him. And this brings us to the last thing I want to say by way of introduction before we get into the rest of chapter one. And that is because, and that is that because all this is true, and I hope you can see from the black and white text that that, that is true, that those things are true of the local church, as we go through this letter, and perhaps more then most other parts of the Bible do we need to be convinced of this as we come to 1 Timothy. We have to remember that what is written in these words is Jesus speaking to us, not me, not the elders, not even traditional history, not even the Apostle Paul. It is Jesus. And when we recognize that, that it is Jesus speaking over his church, over his house, over which he rules for his glory and for his truth in the world, then the hard things that we have to wrestle with in this letter become slightly easier to bear, even if we don't quite understand them, even if it's really hard to agree with them. When we get to chapter 2, looking at the role of men and women in a few weeks' time and who should be elders, who shouldn't, some of it will grate deeply as we are the product of our culture and as we come right up against it. All the time, remember we, when we do that, it is Jesus speaking over his church, not me, and we're trying to work out really hard with sincere faith how we work that out. When we see the fact that false teachers need to be named and taken out of the church and, and banished from being allowed to have any foothold in the church family, as, as uncomfortable as that might be in our very tolerant society, remember it is Jesus speaking, not me. When we have come to the fact that church authority and eldership is to be respected and obeyed, when we sort of automatically recoil at being told what to do and having any kind of authority over us, remember it is Jesus speaking, not me. And when we as elders, and me most supremely as your minister for whom this letter is first and foremost written, as this letter holds my feet to the fire of how I should be behaving, where my godliness is to be tested publicly through this letter before you, where my motives are to be questioned publicly, where my loyalty is to be tried publicly through this letter, where my wholeheartedness is to be revealed publicly through this letter, where my teaching is to be investigated and challenged publicly through this letter, where my attitude and behavior is to be shown up before you all publicly every Sunday from this pulpit through this letter. More so than anyone else in this room. As my life and character and conduct is detailed in depth here in this letter before you, along with the rest of the elders, I have to remember, as grimly uncomfortable as I'm going to find preaching this letter, not least as I preach this letter, knowing the way in which I have failed you as minister, as an elder, as your shepherd, through my sin, my faithlessness, my reactions, whatever it is, and as I catch your eyes on a Sunday morning, I have to remember that it is Jesus talking. This is his church. I have a deadly serious role to undertake. We all do as elders. This is not a joke. 
because you are God's house, and I'm tasked to be an under-shepherd of that, to, to look after you. But we are not just a club. We are here for his glory as we hold out and protect his truth. And the truth is, as we become, I hope and pray, more established in this community, and even in our relative youth and our fragility, as we seek to grow by God's grace in stormy environments, in a post-Christian nation, as we wrestle as a church with the roles of men and women and leadership and authority and teaching, as some of you are seeking to become members of this church, wondering why we do the things we do, why we're structured in a certain way, and why we hold dear the things that we hold dear, we have to look at this letter. Because in this letter, all these things are answered. We have to be reminded of what is important to God and why we must do the things that we do, even if we find them hard. We have to be convinced that the only way to thrive as a local church in any way is to obey the Lord Jesus and do what he tells us to do. And to do all of that, as hard as it may be, in love. And that idea of doing difficult things in love finally brings us to our first point of three as we begin to crack open the start of this letter. I promise you this next week is going to be very short. <laughs> that's that's a half of my sermon on the introduction. Uh, the first point this morning is the obvious start for Paul in this letter, that is to remind Timothy of what he is to do in, in, in all of that. Point one, Paul's charge to Timothy. We're going to rattle through these. Just read verse one to seven with me as we begin to see all of this unlocked and unraveled for us. Let me read those verses Uh, for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus, our hope to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, Timothy, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than a stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim, says Paul, of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In short, the letter starts off with Paul's charge to Timothy. Charge is an interesting word. It's not what you do to your phone. It's, it's, it's something that crops up a lot in this book as we go through it a number of times in this chapter. It simply means a, an earnest and resolute calling. I earnestly and resolutely call you, Timothy, to to do what I'm writing in this letter. Another way of putting it, I am entrusting the responsibilities of the church family under the Lord Jesus into your charge. That's important. This is really important, in other words. says, Paul, I'm not writing any letter to you. I'm, I'm not just asking you to do anything. I am charging you to look after God's church under the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does Paul charge Timothy with? Well, verse 3, look at that. As I urged you, Timothy, that's a word of earnest seriousness, isn't it? I urge you, Timothy, my son in the faith, my right-hand man, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus to do what? So that you may further charge certain persons not to preach any different doctrine. What is Timothy to do right at the start of this young new church? He is to tackle false teachers who are teaching a false gospel. That's the first thing he needs to deal with, front and center. So what is the false teaching that's going on here in Ephesus that Timothy needs to be get rid of? We don't know exactly. Paul doesn't always detail in all of his letters what false teaching looks like. And it's not made clear necessarily in this letter. We will look actually at a definitive example in a bit, which he he does make it clear. But, 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 But I think the ambiguity, to some extent, actually points to what this false teaching might have been. As with most false teaching, it's possibly something that you couldn't really easily pin down. 
He might have been teaching that sounded a little bit like the gospel, even perhaps a lot like the gospel, but was somehow false and wrong and leading people astray, not pointing Jesus, people to Jesus, but, but pointing them to someone or something else. And we get the idea that that's what this teaching might be. In verse 4, have a look at that. Charge these certain persons, these false teachers, says Paul, not to teach a different doctrine, which seem to look like getting excited about myths, endless genealogies, and wild spiritual speculation. In other words, be careful, Timothy. Be careful, Sam, Will, elders, deacons, Redeemer Church. Be careful of people who who love big tangential discussions about the minutiae of the Bible, but which lead absolutely nowhere, don't build up the church, and they get really angry when they're challenged. That, that lead to academic and vain discussions, sort of blowing a lot of hot air, and it's making our brains big, but it does nothing for our godliness. Be really careful of those people. Be one of those folks who get excited about new interpretations of the Bible from the latest podcast or the new book or the new best-selling uh, uh, Christian book that, that provides a new perspective on that or this fundamental doctrine that hasn't actually changed in the past 2,000 years, but we might need to have a different view on it now. Be, be careful of those who believe that the Spirit is saying something new to us beyond what the Bible is saying. Those are myths and nonsense, says Paul. Also, be careful of the devil's advocate, who's always offering the other view to what's being taught, who likes to throw up the alternative theories to everything, to a passage that sounds very spiritual and exciting and profound, but, verse 7, in reality, they, they don't really know what they're talking about, despite the fact that they sound so confident. This is the kind of person you can never pin down on what they really think or feel or believe or know. They're, they're slippery like eels. You can't quite grasp them. They leave you with sort of no earthly idea what the Bible says, if it says anything at all. They're the kind of people who, when you ask them what they really think, they sort of shrug with a wink, and they're sort of carrying some deeply profound truth around with them that you're sort of not allowed to work out. They're sort of a bit aloof and above everyone else, all mysterious and enticing. Be really careful says Paul. Watch out for these folks, Timothy, and charge them to change. Charge them to not do those things, end of verse 4. Encourage them to, to concentrate on the stewardship of the gospel that comes from their faith in the Lord Jesus, whom they love. If, if they're continuing in this teaching and they're not living in faith in love in the Lord Jesus, who wants people to know, chapter, 13, uh, chapter 3, that the truth, if they're not living a, a, alongside Jesus who wants people to know the truth, then, then you need to get, get rid of them from the church. And that is what you need to do, Timothy. And make sure that you don't become like these people. That's the bigger application here. Make sure that you, Sam, don't become any of these kinds of people. Chapter 4.16 will say, watch yourself, Timothy, and your teaching. This is to me. There's no telling that you, that I, Sam, might become these people in a year's time. There is no saying that that won't happen unless I obey and believe the gospel and do what it says in this book. The question is, what do we do about this kind of teaching? How am I, as your minister, the elders, all of you meant to protect ourselves from this? Well, Paul's going to tell us in a few weeks, this is why we have elders, to protect the teaching of the church. It's why it's so important. It's also the reason why we have elders in every growth group, and we're unashamed of that. We'll see in black and white in a few weeks' time, the elders' responsibility before the Lord is to challenge any kind of teaching that is not the simple gospel. A good elder should rightly step in at points in a study or on a Sunday or 
elsewhere in conversations where it's needed and, and to gently challenge something that has been confidently asserted as being right but actually is wrong. An elder needs the courage to say, well, I'm not sure that's right. Let's have a look at the passage together. Let's, let's look at this properly. What, what does it really say? The, the elders are charged to do that. I am charged to do that. We have to. We cannot allow to let that teaching thrive. We answer to the Lord Jesus for this task, and he takes your protection deadly seriously. However, in what manner am I and the elders meant to do that? Well, we're meant to do it, verse 5, in love. Just look at that. The aim of our charge is not brutal legalism, thwacking people over the head, telling them they're wrong, and then violently expelling them from the church. Not at all. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. These are all the attributes needed for anyone like Timothy, like his elders, is entrusted to handle the Bible and teach the word. We teach, rebuke, correct, training in righteousness. Two Timothy reminds us of that from the word in love, gently, sincerely, having a clean conscience that we've wrestled with the passage, prayed over it, we're confident in it, in the Lord Jesus, even if it's hard and it's uncomfortable for us to say. There is a right thing here in this passage, and I'm okay and unashamed to tell people what that is. That's what Bible handling looks like to Paul. That's what we're meant to be doing with you. That's how we protect each other as elders and ministers from slowly getting things wrong and then letting the truth slip. We're meant to defeat false teaching with love and gentleness and joy. But sometimes that does also mean removing people and saying, no, that, that teaching just isn't allowed in our church. We're so sorry. But we follow the Lord Jesus. That's really tough. But it's also out of love. Those decisions have to be made out of love for you. Just look at the end of chapter 1, verse 18 to 20, where Paul finishes his introduction by reminding Timothy again of this charge. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn not to blaspheme. You see, this is how seriously Paul takes false teaching, because it is a serious thing that actually shipwrecks people's faith for eternity. Paul is charging Timothy to fight Fight the good fight of faith. We are in a war in the local church, says Timothy, a war against those who would love us to fail by letting our grip of the gospel go. And even if we're teaching the Bible faithfully today, as I said, there is no guarantee that I'm going to be preaching it faithfully tomorrow. Keeping the gospel the main thing takes all our effort, all my effort, all the elders' effort. It's a fight. It's a war. We have to keep going. I'm, I'm charged to not allow your faith to be shipwrecked by me standing back and allowing false teaching to permeate among us, to not say or do the hard things when I need to, because I, I need to be loving you more in Christ than I love what you think of me. Indeed, so serious is false teaching that Paul expels Hymenaeus and Alexander, doesn't he? People who contended side by side with him for the gospel, who have allowed false teaching to rule, so he hands them over to Satan. That's extreme language to show just how far the teaching of Jesus these guys were preaching. It looked good, but actually it belonged to, to, to Satan. It was that bad. So he hands them over to the world, but look, not without hope. And for loving reasons, he does so in order that they may see the error of their ways, the consequences of their blasphemy against God. That's what false teaching is. It is blasphemous against the living God whose church is his home when nothing against him should be allowed to thrive. False teaching is deadly serious. I have to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment in a way that you lot don't. Some of you who are ministers here, you do as well. 
that the elders do as well. And I have to give an answer to the question, Sam, into the face of Jesus, did you protect my sheep? From people who taught a false gospel or who led people astray. Did you shipwreck people's faith? I have to answer that question. That's a really difficult question to answer. This is really serious, guys. And that includes having difficult conversations in love about how wonderful the gospel is and and how we want to protect you. And, And that's even harder when I know I get this wrong and you know I get this wrong. And you sit there rightly with all the things I've got wrong in your mind. (laughs) And I have to apologize for that. And that's what I have to fight for every day. Repentance and faith as I try and live this out in front of you. Answering that question before the Lord Jesus, did I protect his church? That brings us on to point two, much more quickly. Paul expands a particular point that some of these false teachers might have been preaching that he really wants us to be aware of. Secondly, Paul's caution about false teaching. Certain persons, he says... Um, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, that's quite a list. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In short, very quickly, one of the ways, Paul is saying here, that false teachers distort the truth is by distorting the law of God. We see this in verse 9. It seems these false teachers were laying down the law for themselves as something to conquer and achieve and keep perfectly and to measure themselves against in front of God to prove how good they are. That's that's what's going on in in verse 9. That's what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day, wasn't it? That's what verse 9 is saying here. The law says, Paul, is not laid down for you who think you're just. Yeah, I'm pretty good when it comes up against the law. It's not to prove how good you are. It's not for those who think they're already righteous. In fact, it's the opposite, says Paul. It's to expose deep and serious sin. And this list here is the kind of sin he means. It's strong, and it is so because it's actually following the Ten Commandments. That's why these sins are here. It seems weird, in order, in fact. Ungodliness, unholiness, profanity, they sort of cover the first four commandments, followed by dishonoring your parents, that's striking your mother's and father's bit, and in order, murder, sexual sin, enslaving what isn't yours, and lying. In short, Paul's point here is don't give in to teaching that makes you feel great because you'll think you're not as bad as you are when you come up against the law. I'm a pretty good person. And don't fall for teaching that allows you to get away with your sin and be comfortable in it because of your respectability. Paul says the law is good. It it helps us as Christians live well. But remember what it's there for, says Paul. It's to expose the worst sin, the the Ten Commandments sin in us, the murderous hearts in us because we hate each other, the, the adulterous hearts in us, the idolatrous hearts in us. The law has come for people like you, in other words, and for me, for we all fall short of God's perfect standard of the Ten Commandments and the law. Don't fall for a church that refuses to call out sin, that does nothing to help people fight it, that doesn't teach or keep the law of God properly. More importantly, don't fall for a church that preaches a faith by works and respectability, believing we are, we are just in ourselves. I look pretty good against the law. Shame about that person. I'm so glad I'm not him. 
Don't fall for a church that promotes or doesn't encourage teaching against whatever is contrary to sound doctrine, verses 10 and 11, in accordance with the gospel, the, the gospel of whom? The gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is serious. The law is to expose sin. And it is to expose our sin, my sin, your sin. We are failures when it comes to the law. It is good for that, the law. It shows us up. And that is how it is to be taught. So teach it that way, Timothy. That salvation only comes through grace and grace alone in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who saves the very worst of humanity to, to himself, all of us who are extreme lawbreakers. As Jesus himself said, I have not come for the well, those who think they're fine and just before God. I've come for the sick, the, the desperately sinful, the lost, the, those who've broken all of the Ten Commandments. I've broken all of the Ten Commandments, and I hope that's not news for you this morning. I've come for the lost. Just the law has come for people like you and me to expose sin. So Jesus has come for you and me, for whom our sin is exposed, and, and to deal with us. And we need him. We need his gospel truth to save us every day. We all fall short of God's perfect standards, the Ten Commandments, the law. Indeed, point three as we close. The law, Jesus, the gospel, has come for people like Paul himself, the worst of sinners. That's exactly where we end. For what tools does Timothy need to combat this false teaching and protect the church? Well, he needs to be reminded of the gospel itself as exampled in Paul's own life. Just read those last few verses with me from verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am, says Paul, the foremost. I'm right at the front of the line. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What is the gospel? What is the truth that Timothy, that we are to hold out in the world which combats legalism and spiritual confusion and myths and teaching that drag us away from an eternity with God, from dealing with our sin. It is the gospel of grace, verses 12 to 13, which found wretched, blasphemous, law-breaking Paul who deserved to be handed over to Satan and yet turned him into a man who has been entrusted with service to Jesus himself. It is the gospel of faith and love, verse 14, where trusting in Jesus alone, through faith alone, is the means of being saved in repentance and faith. Not keeping the law through legalism, it is solely trusting in the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross that he has done everything for me to make me right with the Saviour. It is the gospel of incredible mercy, verse 16, which bears with us deep sinners so, so patiently. We sin time and time again, and Jesus still diesels us so patiently through our salvation in his perfect blood. His perfect example of his saving power, so that it might be exampled in us. So that Jesus, incredibly, can look to the wretched people in his church, me, and go, actually, that's what my salvation looks like. Isn't that incredible? As individuals of his church, that's what we are able to be to the world, to all those who believe. That's the example of the gospel. 
Ultimately, it is the simple gospel that teaches simply this, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Is that what we are preaching here at Redeemer? Is that what we are living out at Redeemer? For for those of you who aren't Christians here this morning, did, did you know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save you? that you are a sinner and that you need his forgiveness. He's there for you. He loves you, fit to die for you. And I hope we are a church which is telling you that and encouraging you to follow him. It is that gospel of grace, love, mercy, patience, faith, everything that is exampled and taught and lived out and protected in the church family that we, we need to hold on to. Is that what we are doing? Is that gospel... that that rightly teaches the law, exposes sin that needs to be dealt with and and repented of and taught and lived out and protected, is is, is that being done in this church family? If not, are we willing to change things to make make that so? As we go through 1 Timothy as a church, there may well be things, many things that we need to change. There may be many things I need to change as your minister in repentance. There may be many things that we need to change as elders. There are maybe many things that you all need to change as individuals, as members of the household of God. I hope we are all receptive to that. It would be amazing if we didn't. That's how the word of God works. But if we are teaching this gospel, and if we are willing to give everything we have to fight to keep that being so, then we will be changed more into a church that is fit for purpose. to to keep this gospel of the immortal, invisible, only why God is personified in the Lord Jesus Christ as the main thing, that is what we are working towards. Are we willing to fight to be pillars of the truth which upholds this gospel in this community and in the world, no matter how hard it is? As Philip Jensen said, as I close, in his book on 1 Timothy, he says this, nowhere in the whole of the Bible are we closer to Paul's mind for his church than when he's talking to 1 Timothy under the Lord Jesus. These words were to shape Timothy's life and ministry. My prayer is that it shapes ours as well. Let me pray as we close. Father God, thank you and praise you so much for this time this morning. Thank you for your goodness to us in the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save us from our sin, to save those of us who are wretchedly sinful, Heavenly Father, thank you that this is a wonderful, beautiful gospel that we are allowed to be known for and that we as your church family here on earth are allowed to defend and protect and and uphold and share with people. It's an incredible thing. This should be a wonderful joy. Father, I pray that if we get nothing else out of 1 Timothy, I pray that we would be excited about the church and the fact that this is who we are and and you have such a high view of us, not because of us, but because of what we're here for, to to glorify God and to speak about him and to, to, to charge people with the truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I do pray, however, that we will be humbled. Help us, Father, as ministers, me, as minister, Will, the elders, the deacons, all of us here who are members of this local church. Father, please help us to have our minds and our hearts opened and willing to be changed, willing to be made more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, willing to repent and to come alongside people and to confess sin and deal with things going on in our lives and to to, to be the church that you want us to be in order, not just that we grow with lots of people, but that we may see people saved. 
that people in the community would really come to know the living Lord Jesus Christ and would have this gospel truth for themselves for eternity. Father, protect us, we pray. Protect us from our sin. Protect us from, from doing things that would take us out. Protect us from false teaching. Please, please keep all of us who are teaching and preaching very guarded and stuck close to the word of God. May we never move from that. And may this term be a real term of, of joy and excitement as we become more like the church that you intend us to be for the glory of your name, for the good of the lost, and for our joy in eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.